it is a journey and it's a very steep uphill slope initially. But once you get there, once you figure out what is what regimen is going to work for you, whether it's only lifestyle and supplements or maybe and diet, or maybe it's, you know, superimposed on that medications. Once you figure it out, hopefully that will carry you through and improve your headache severity and frequency, but also your quality of life. You know, that's what really what we're talking about here is your quality of life. And so uh, find a provider that you feel comfortable with who can walk you through this journey. Welcome back to the Bendy Bodies Podcast, where we speak with experts, bringing you state-of-the-art information to help you improve your well-being, enhance your performance, and optimize career longevity. This is co-host Jennifer Milner, here with the Hypermobility MD, Linda Bluestein. We are so glad you are here to learn tips to help you self-manage your conditions and live your best Bendy life. This information is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice. I'm Jennifer Milner, a former professional ballet and Broadway dancer, and I struggled my whole career with hypermobility-based injuries and issues. Now I train dancers and want to be sure that the next generation of hypermobile artists are better equipped to work to their full potential. I'm Dr. Linda Bluestein, and I started Bendy Bodies as my second podcast to educate the hypermobile community. Despite being a physician, I experienced decades of symptoms before being finally diagnosed with hypermobile EDS, and I too have been gaslit and felt completely alone in my journey. Our guest today is Dr. Rudrani Bannock, neuro-ophthalmologist and founder of Envision Health New York City. Hello, Dr. Bannock, and welcome to Bendy Bodies. Thank you so much, Jennifer. It's really a pleasure to be here with you both. We are so excited to chat with you. We are. We have a lot that we want to cover today. But first, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So um, I am a board-certified ophthalmologist and a fellowship-trained neuro-ophthalmologist. So I deal with all the conditions that connect the eyes to the brain. There are many nerves that um, are responsible for our vision, how we move our eyes, how we move our face. So I deal with all of that. And as part of what I do, um, I treat a lot of migraine, various types of migraine, uh, because many, many migraine patients have visual symptoms that go along with their headache symptoms. Now, in addition to that, um, I recently uh, got a second certification in functional medicine. So I layer that on top of everything else I do. Um, I look at the root cause of various chronic diseases, um, and then I address the root cause rather than to just put a band-aid on the problem really to try to get to where it's coming from and address it that way. And in functional medicine, um, the basis for a lot of what we do, the foundation of treatment is usually nutrition uh, as well as lifestyle. So I use a lot of those strategies in the treatment of my patients with neuroophthalmic problems as well as eye problems because I still do comprehensive ophthalmology. That's great. And it's really nice to see someone that sort of does the whole person even though you're working with the specialty with the the eye brain connection, it's great to see that you look at the whole person and everything that could be going on. Um, So as we said, we wanted to talk about headaches today. Our podcast is about all things hypermobility related and chronic headaches and migraines seem to be a pretty common comorbidity in people with hypermobility disorders. Have you noticed that in your own practice? Absolutely. If, if, if people are asked, most often the answer is yes. Uh, if you're not asked, then we don't know. So it's really important, I think, to be aware of um, the various range of conditions that can occur in hypermobility and, and EDS um, patients and ask those important questions. Um, and there are specific types of headaches that may also occur in these patients who have a history of hypermobility. So we can definitely talk about that as well. Sure. And and that's so true. There's so many different causes of headaches in this population, right? So today we're going to dive, I think, pretty specifically into the migraine portion, but obviously feel free to comment on any of the other types. And we just want to give people some ideas as to, you know, sometimes people use headache and migraine interchangeably, but we know they're not the same thing. Um, And of course there are other different types of headaches, but could you describe some of the common types of headaches that you encounter in your practice and how those are, how migraine might be different from other types of headache? Sure. So that's a really important point is that not all headache is migraine and not all migraine is headache. I 
say that a lot in my in my practice. Um, so there are different types of headaches. Um, for example, there are tension headaches. There are migraine headaches. Um, some people uh, use the term sinus headaches, though officially it's not a medical term, even though the pain may be, seem like it's originating from the sinuses, it's probably a different form of headache syndrome. Then there are cluster headaches. Um, there are headaches that we call cervicogenic headaches. Um, and there are other uh, more, I would say less common headaches called trigeminal autonomic cephalgias. So there's a whole range of different types of headache syndromes, um, and each has their own um, uh, symptoms and, and, you know, the diagnostic criteria, et cetera. But, um, but uh, one thing I just did want to say is that it's important if you have headaches, especially if you have headaches on a regular basis, that you seek out medical care to figure out which of these different types of headache syndromes it may be, because sometimes the treatments can be quite different and the workup may even be different. So it is really important to seek out a doctor if you're, you know, if you're not sure, it seems like it's a sinus headache, but what is it really? Um, and one other thing I did want to mention is that um, within the brain, there's really only one nerve that is responsible for pain. And that nerve is the trigeminal nerve. And no matter what type of headache you have, whether it's a tension headache, a migraine headache, a cluster headache, it's the same nerve that gets activated. So there may be some overlap between these various different types of symptoms or syndromes because the same nerve is being activated perhaps in slightly different ways. Mm. That's so interesting. And that's, that's really interesting to think about that. And as we're talking about this, and we're talking about the importance of going to see a doctor and getting looked at, we're not talking about the casual, you know, brain freeze or hangover <laughs> headache, or, you know, any of those sorts of things that are, that it can happen. Or if you have a sinus infection, and you've had a headache, and it clears up and goes away, we're talking about some sort of chronic um, headache pain or something that seems to recur somewhat regularly. So it's important to make that distinction for everybody. So nobody feels like they have to run out and go see a doctor, um, just because they had a little too much to drink the night before. So, uh, how do you, how do you, so how do you diagnose migraines versus other headaches? Yeah, that's a great question. So there are specific criteria for migraine. And so um, I always tell people, you know, you may self-diagnose yourself with, with migraine, but definitely um, see a professional. And so what, what are these criteria? Well, first of all, there needs to be at least five attacks of a particular type of headache. And this type of headache usually is unilateral. So one side of the head, maybe behind the eye, extending up, you know, sort of one hemisphere of your head. Um, it tends to be of a throbbing nature um, or a stabbing nature. So um, just kind of a pounding. Some patients could describe it as a pounding sensation. And um, usually the episodes, you know, there are five episodes total that are required for the diagnosis, but each episode can last anywhere from four to 72 hours. So that's much longer than your typical hangover headache or you know tension headache, et cetera. And then not only that, there are additional criteria Criteria that need to, or symptoms that need to occur during the headache. Um, for example, light sensitivity, sound sensitivity, nausea, vomiting, these all play into the diagnostic criteria for migraine. So again, some people may presume that they have migraine, but if they don't meet all of those criteria, it could be something else. And that's important to distinguish not because we want to say, well, you don't have a migraine, so it's not a big deal, but it's important to distinguish because. Um, it changes the treatment, right? It's so it, it may change the approach to it. So it's really helpful for people to be able to sort of see the difference in them. Um, so again, our population does seem to have a larger share than normal of chronic headaches or migraines. Um, so let's look at the non-migraine headaches for a second. What could be some of the common culprits of a non-migraine headache? Usually it's lifestyle factors. For example, dehydration, stress, heat, um, you know, heat stroke, for example, can can be associated with a headache. Um, and uh, in the majority of those cases, we we typically call these tension headaches, and they tend to occur bilaterally, usually in the forehead area, sometimes in the temple area, sometimes it may even go down the shoulders into the neck, but it tends to be a bilateral process, and it's more of a pressure sensation. And it's really interesting in that. Um, Tension headaches, again, they're usually triggered by lifestyle factors, but activity makes them better. So I know a lot of people, when they get a headache, they feel like they just want to lie down and take a rest, but sometimes actually engaging in some kind of 
activity can improve your headache. Now that's um, in in uh, kind of uh, uh, the opposite of what happens with a migraine. In a migraine, actually, if there's too much activity, it makes things a lot worse. So it's actually better to rest during a migraine. So that's one important feature to distinguish between the two. But again, just going back to your question, um, if you do have frequent tension type headaches, think about what's going on in your life. Um, is it that you're dehydrated? Is it that maybe you're not sleeping well enough? Sometimes um, irregular sleep patterns or lack of enough sleep can lead to a tension headache as well. And again, stress is kind of the elephant in the room that I always ask my patients about, you know, are you stressed more than your average level of stress? Where is it coming from? What can we do to mitigate that to help with your tension headaches? So what are some common triggers of migraines? So that's a great question. And a lot of them are similar to those triggers that I just described for tension as well. Uh, many people, it is lack of sleep, dehydration. Um, another interesting feature of migraine is that people may have food sensitivities and that can sometimes trigger a migraine. For example, foods that are processed that may be rich in a compound called tyramine um, that people have trouble processing. And then that could lead to headaches, for example, fermented products, fermented cheeses, certain alcohols, um, uh, even certain types of bread can trigger migraine headaches because of their, their uh, products, including tyramine. Um, other things that can trigger migraines, um, usually, um, I shouldn't say usually, but in a lot of people, um, their brains are, people who have, who have migraine are very sensitive to their environment. So changes in their environment, for example, uh, light, uh, bright sunny days or sun glare coming off of the snow or off of the water can trigger a migraine. Flashing lights can trigger a migraine, loud sounds. So for example, the other day I get migraines myself. So I'm a, I'm very familiar with the symptoms. The other day I was at a, in a concert and those flashing lights and those loud sounds, they triggered a pretty severe migraine for me. So, um, I just have to be very cautious, you know, about what type of environment I'm in. And then, uh, because again, the brain is very, it's almost hypersensitive to changes. Um, people who have migraine are really sensitive to weather induced um, weather fronts coming in. For example, uh, changes in barometric pressure. Usually when the barometric pressure falls quickly um, with the onset of a storm, that's when people may discover that they're suddenly getting more migraines. So it's all it's important to think about all this and maybe keep a diary. If you do have migraines, if you've been diagnosed, or you may think you have migraines, keep a diary of your symptoms. What do you think the patterns are? And that way you're better equipped to know what to do to prevent them. But also when you go see a provider, you can take that information with you and it can be quite helpful. That's really um, a great list of things. And I couldn't help but notice that several of them sort of fall alongside issues, maybe like mast cell disorders. Um, so it's great for people with uh, a common comorbidity like um, mast cell activation disorder to be able to see that those sorts of things line up. Definitely not my area of expertise, but we have had several people in to talk about it. And uh, it seems to be um, something that is kind of a common, a common theme in a lot of people. Absolutely. I think, um, well, part of what I do as a functional medicine practitioner is to try to get to the root cause of why somebody may be predisposed to something like migraine and mast cell activation syndrome is, a, is definitely one of those conditions that may lead to uh, certain conditions like migraine, um, as well as others, uh, which we can talk about later, perhaps, but yeah, migraine is definitely one of those. I can't remember the what year the paper was published, but they talked about different conditions that could be mast cell related and migraine was definitely on that list. So um, yeah, definitely something to think about. What are some of the other types of migraines that we might want to be aware of? Migraines that could occur maybe in other parts of the body? Yeah, so um, not all migraine has a headache. That's the, that's the um, unusual feature of migraine. You know, people think, oh, it's a headache where you just have to kind of go into a dark room and go to sleep, but not everybody has those symptoms. Some people have just visual symptoms, which we call aura, where um, you may see flashing lights kind of, it's quite scary actually when it happens, because if you think, oh my goodness, am I having a stroke? You know, what's going on? Because people see these flashing lights, they have a zigzag pattern. It almost looks like a kaleidoscope and it's multicolored kind of geometric patterns. And that aura, that visual aura can last anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes before it subsides. And usually it's followed by a headache, but not always. Some people just have the aura. Other people may have 
other types of aura. For example, this can be quite scary as well. Numbness and tingling on one side of their body or even weakness on one side of their body. Again, of course, we need to rule out stroke, but let's say the first time it happens, you know, the stroke workup is even done and it's not a stroke. It's a specific type of migraine. We can call it hemiplegic migraine. Again, usually it's followed by a headache, but not always. And then there are other people who get what we call vestibular migraines. And these are episodes, they're quite um, hard to um, diagnose because they're very sporadic. And people have this sudden onset of dizziness, vertigo, where the entire room is spinning around them. And they may not get the typical migraine symptoms, but perhaps they have a history of migraine. Perhaps they've had migraine many years before and now it's better, but now they're getting these different types of migraines that we call again, uh, vestibular migraine. Um, and then one other thing I wanted to point out is that migraine in migraine, not only is that trigeminal nerve activated, that nerve, I, that nerve I was explaining to you about earlier, but the vagus nerve is involved as well. So the vagus nerve connects basically our whole body from the brain down through our um, heart, our lungs into our digestive system. So many people, when they have a migraine actually have digestive issues. They have gastrointestinal symptoms like bloating, cramping. I mentioned earlier, nausea, vomiting, even loose stools. So, um, so there may be this gastrointestinal component of their migraine symptoms without the headache that makes it really, really hard to diagnose. And actually in children, the GI type of symptoms is much more common than the headache. So many kids will actually have those symptoms and be, you know, have this huge gastrointestinal workup with endoscopies and colonoscopies and biopsies and everything is negative. And it may actually end up being a form of migraine. So I think it's important for people just to realize that it's a spectrum and it's not just the headache. It can be many, many different manifestations which is yet another reason why it's so good to go in and get things checked out. And it's great to, um, to go to a doctor who is open to try to sort of explore everything and figure it out. I've had two dancers diagnosed with what they called stomach migraines, as mm. you said. Um, and, and like you said, there was a huge workup trying to figure out what was going on, what it was, and they're both uh, pre-professional teenagers. And, and that was the diagnosis. So yeah, that's, it's, um, as you said, not every migraine is a headache and not every headache is a migraine. <laughs> yeah. It can be very elusive, especially when there are these unusual symptoms. And uh, sometimes it's best to actually go to see a headache specialist, not, you know, you can start with your primary care doctor, uh, but it's sometimes best to see a specialist who deals with this on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. So um, if someone suspects that they do have a migraine, have migraines, what steps would you suggest they take to get relief? Sounds like the first step to you would be to go get it checked out. Yes. Get, get the diagnosis, make sure it's not something else. You know, there are more um, serious brain issues, neurologic issues that can mimic a migraine. So definitely you want to make sure it's not one of those things. Um, I always start with, um, I have patients take a headache diary to try to figure out what their triggers may be. And I always start with the things that they can control. So if they know that dehydration leads to their migraines, stay extra hydrated, especially if you're going to be doing any kind of physical activity, strenuous activity, uh, make that extra effort to hydrate aggressively. Um, and I always try to approach things more holistically before starting a medication, uh, you know, prescription medication. So I always talk to patients about things they can do, maybe some dietary changes. If they think that they're sensitive to certain foods, eliminate those foods. Uh, again, those processed foods or foods high in sugar content, um, perhaps foods rich in tyramine, try to exclude those foods, see if that helps. Um, and then I'm a big uh, believer in certain supplements for migraine. And there are studies to back this. There are many studies to show that people who have migraine do benefit from certain supplements, including magnesium, which is a huge benefit for many of us for other reasons as well. Most of us are magnesium deficient. So it's good to, to take a supplement. Um, also B-complex, particularly uh, B2, which is riboflavin. There are studies that show that in patients who have chronic migraine, 400 milligrams of riboflavin taken daily for at least three months can make a big um, improvement in the frequency and severity of their symptoms. Now, most um, multivitamins will have a very small amount of riboflavin, maybe anywhere from two to 10 milligrams. So you have to take kind of a separate uh, separate high dose riboflavin supplement if you do want to pursue that route. But these are some simple things people can do. Other things, um, again, I mentioned that migraine brains are super sensitive. So maybe just adjust 
adjusting the lighting in your house, wearing certain tinted glasses when you go outside so the sun doesn't precipitate a migraine, uh, making sure you're on a regular sleep schedule, a regular meal schedule, trying to modulate stress. I always tell my talk to my patients about what they're doing to help their stress levels, whether it be meditation or some other stress reduce activity. These are all the basics. I always tell my patients, have your foundation set. And then if you still get severe headaches, breakthrough headaches, then we can talk about maybe adding on prescription medications. It's not my first go-to in most patients. That's great. And an overarching theme that we hear um, with so many of our specialists like yourself are going back to the basics. Are you eating well? you know, not just as a healthy diet, but are you eating well for you and your particular needs? Are you getting enough sleep? Are you exercising properly? Are you taking good care of yourself? It's all about that preventative actions and um, and trying to do what you can to not get into position to need to take medicine. Um, migraines do, speaking of medicine though, do sort of have an overwhelming array of medication available these days. You know, we see celebrities selling it on TV and everything. And at the same time, people with hypermobility disorders definitely can react differently than the average person on medication. So how do you, if you hit the point where you think, let's start looking at medication, we've done all the things that we can, we've, we've taken all those preventative steps. Um, how do you walk your patients through that sort of trial and error process of figuring out a medication that works? Yeah. So, um, so first of all, I always tell my patients that any medication I put you on can potentially have a side effect, anything. Uh, and even, even the ones that have been around for 30, 40 years can potentially have a side effect and each person is different. So your side effect may be different from my side effect. And just because something worked for one person doesn't mean that overall it's going to work for everybody with a particular symptom. So I usually start with the, the classes of medications that I, in my experience, have the fewest side effects. And, um, and again, I start with the lowest dose possible and see what their response is. And after two weeks, if, they, if they're doing okay, then try to bump them up to the next level if they need it. Um, it's, as you mentioned earlier, there is a huge armamentarium of different medications we now have for migraine, which is wonderful in a sense, but it doesn't mean that the same medicine is right for everybody. So there are medications, for example, traditional um, blood pressure medications, such as beta blockers or calcium channel blockers can be very useful in migraine with relatively few side effects. But for people who have hypermobility disorders. Um, you probably know better than I do, uh, Dr. Bluestein, but um, you know, it's, it's, people don't necessarily react the way that we would think they would. So a medication that you think may not typically have a particular side effect may have a side effect in, in a particular individual. So it's always best to start low and then to go up and see how people respond. Other, um, uh, there's a whole new class of medications that hit the market about three years ago, I mean, almost four years ago now called CGRP inhibitors. And these are the medications that, that um, Jennifer, you mentioned are marketed. You see them advertised on TV, you know, there are celebrities taking them, et cetera. They're, they are targeted at a, a particular molecule that's responsible for pain and migraine called calcitonin gene-related peptide. And these medications are not first-line medications at all, but if there is no response to other classes, then they can be used. And there are different types. For example, there's injectable ones, once a month injectable medications, and there are oral versions. And then there's one that's every three months. It's an infusion every three months. So if you're not responding to the first, first tier of medications or the second tier, it may be it may be that you need the third tier, in which case, again, see a provider, find out what's best for you. And of those, find out which specific one may be best for you. And it's always best to, to proceed with caution, especially with hypermobility um, issues. Uh, you just never know what could what could happen. Well, and that and that that just goes back to another common theme that we have so much time is slow and low, whether it's exercise or changing your diet or whatever it is, just going slow and low and moving slowly and cautiously um, and having a practitioner who um, either really understands hypermobility or is willing to learn about it and to be open to trying to figure it out with you. So um, it's great that again, that you look at the whole body and the patient. And I was curious if you found with the um, calcitonin gene receptor um, antagonist, if you found any differences in pain in the rest of their body, because I, I treat people with persistent pain 
you know, oftentimes it's really widespread and I, I haven't really been prescribing those medications. Oftentimes they come to me already on them for migraine, but I was curious if you have, have noticed that in your patients at all. You know, that's a great question. So these, um, these receptors, the CGRP receptors are found not just in the brain, uh, but in other parts of the body as well. I know that they're present in cardiac muscle. Um, I don't know if they're present in skeletal muscle. That's a really interesting question, but I will look that up. Um, but, um, but it's possible that, you know, this, this class of medication may help pain in other aspects as well. Other parts of the body have, have your patients with migraine who've taken these drugs, have they noticed a decrease in their overall pain levels? Well, you know, I have such a, uh, self-selected population, right? They're coming because they have uncontrolled pain. Mm -hmm. So a lot, and a lot of them are on these medications for migraine. And in some cases they found a significant difference and in other cases they, they haven't. Um, but I, I was just curious since if they're getting relief from other pain, they're probably not coming to me because they don't need to come see me. Right. Mm -hmm. So I was just curious about that. Um, and also tricyclic antidepressants are another class that I know does sometimes get used for migraines. Is that something that you um, prescribe or not too often now that we have the CGRP antagonist? I actually do prescribe those a lot. And my preferred ones are amitriptyline or nortriptyline. Just be aware that, again, everything can have a side effect. And what I tell people is that um, this class of medications, so they're, they're typically medications used to treat depression, uh, but they can cause symptoms like dry eyes, dry mouth, um, sometimes even weight gain, which may not be best for other aspects of their health. So again, it's all a balance between, you know, the benefit of the medication and what the patient can tolerate. And if I do use a tricyclic, I use the smallest dose possible. Mm -hmm. So I usually start with a 10 milligram dose. I mean, I know some doctors will start patients on 40 or 50 milligrams, which is a huge dose. And definitely patients come back, you know, they can't swallow because their throat is too dry. Their eyes are so dry. They can't see properly. So I always start with a very low dose and then I ramp up if necessary. Um, the other um, potential side effect of tricyclics is that it can cause drowsiness and sleepiness. Now I've taken them myself and it may <laughs> me feel like I could not get out of bed. So it was not the right medicine for me, but just be aware that, um, you know, there, there are lots of side effects that can happen. It doesn't happen to everybody, but if it happens for you, there are other options. So then talk to your provider about what else, you know, maybe best for you to switch to. Sure. And I've been on off on and off tricyclics numerous times for, um, for CRPS complex regional pain syndrome for migraine. Um, we use low dose for POTS for um, which is a form of dysautonomia. So I was just curious to ask about that specifically, because that's something that I see prescribed a lot. And I totally agree about starting with a super, super low dose. And then going from there, when people tell me, oh, I tried such and so, and it didn't work. And I usually ask them, well, what dose did you get? Because that makes all the difference. If you tried, if somebody prescribed, like you said, like 40 milligrams and you didn't do well, and you had a terrible morning hangover, it could be the dose, not the drug. So yeah, absolutely. Another drug that I found really useful in migraine is Topamax or Topiramate. Mm -hmm. um, it is an anti-epileptic, but it's FDA approved for migraine as well. And um, the benefit of Topamax is that, well, it has many different mechanisms of action, but in certain patients, now this is kind of getting off to a slightly different topic, but certain patients who have high pressure in their brain, a condition called IIH, they do benefit from Topamax because not they, it helps their headaches. It helps to decrease the fluid produced by the brain. And it also helps with um, appetite suppression. And many of these patients are overweight. So it helps with weight loss for them as well. So there's again, lots of different medications and different indications or different uh, types of headaches that may be better suited to certain medications. I'm glad you mentioned that because um, high pressure headaches are something that well, both high pressure and low pressure, because they can get CSF leaks and get low pressure headaches. But some people with um, Ehlers-Danlos or um, hypermobility spectrum disorder, you know, they can end up with high pressure headaches. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. That's a that's a great tip to uh, to share. Yeah. So thank you. So what about some of the other supplemental things like physical therapy, exercise, working at, with a nutritionist, um, working on their sleep? What what kind of things along those lines do you use? Yeah. So. Um... In some patients, they have um, headaches that actually start at the base of their neck um, and sometimes either go down into their shoulders or go up into their head. And these are headaches that we call cervicogenic headaches. And 
I do know that their cervicogenic headaches are much more common in the uh, hypermobility EDS population, uh, just because of um, craniocervical instability with ligaments and joints, et cetera. So, um, so it is important if you do have headaches that are kind of focused here, or they start here, um, to consider getting physical therapy. Uh, chiropractic therapy can sometimes be very, very helpful. Um, myofascial release can be helpful. Sometimes even acupuncture, acupressure. So I try to incorporate these modalities depending on what the patient's symptoms are and what their response is to their previous treatments. And oftentimes, you know, adding that on, adding on a different member to their care team, for example, a physical therapist or an acupuncturist can make all the difference in really getting them to longer periods of being pain-free. So definitely, if you have that, consider, you know, a referral or ask for a referral. Um, the other thing I would say is that I am a big believer in essential oils. And I don't know if either of you have experience with this for pain uh, or headache syndromes, but um, I found that essential oils, especially when there are cervicogenic headaches or sometimes even tension headaches up here, they can really help to modulate the pain and decrease the pain. Now, whether it's aromatherapy, whether it's penetration from the skin into you know muscles, relaxing them, I'm not sure. But um, for example, I've used peppermint, lavender, and frankincense. Those are kind of my go-to essential oils. Again, these are used topically um, in sparing amounts, not a lot because you don't want to overdose. And, and I know some people take them through uh, capsules, but I would be very cautious with that because sometimes it can cause GI side effects. So topically and, or in even inhalation has worked very well for a lot of my patients who have, um, these types of headaches. I, I will say that I have used them as well. I also have get migraines and tension headaches, and, um, I have found the peppermint to be helpful for the tension headaches. And I have actually used, I don't know if you've tried it, but it's Howood, H-O, Howood has been a, a great essential oil for me for, um, for headaches as well. Oh, I haven't tried it, but I will definitely look into it. Thank you. And again, those are the types of things that people should proceed cautiously with because one person's deep love of lavender may be somebody else's MCAT's trigger, right? So, <laughs> so every, everything affects people differently. Yes. And many people who have migraine are sensitive to smells as well. So mm -hmm. they, they actually be triggered. Their symptoms may be triggered by some of these essential oils. So, right. Exactly. So what tips do you have for people who might be struggling with headaches, trying to figure it all out, but are also trying to, they're really struggling with trying to get the care that they need? Yeah, that's a great uh, question. And unfortunately, um, there aren't that many headache providers per population in the United States. There's a mismatch between the prevalence of headache syndromes and the specialists who can help. So there are now a lot of telemedicine options, which were not available before. I think this is one of the pluses of the pandemic that we realize is that there is a lot more access mm -hmm. to providers through telemedicine and people who've been trained in headaches. So I know that there's online platforms where you can get hooked up with a provider in your area. You know, if you're not able to get an in-person, uh, you know, sometimes headache doctors are booked out three or four months. It's really crazy that, you know, there, there, there's such a long wait to get the, the, the care that people need. So I would seek out maybe a telemedicine option. And, um, you know, a lot of people, this is, you know, kind of unfortunate that this is the case, but a lot of people use the emergency department as their go-to for severe headaches. And, you know, that's not the ideal kind of, um, way to manage your headaches, try to get a provider that you can develop a relationship with that you can see on a regular basis, rather than to go into an emergency department for, you know, those, you know, severe, you know, headaches that just are not breaking. Um, it's best to try to address them before the headaches, before they get to that severe stage. Um, now, of course, if you do have, you know, a really severe headache that's lasted three or four days, it's just not getting better. Absolutely. Maybe go into your local uh, urgent care or emergency department. Sometimes there are infusions that can be given to break that headache cycle. So I'm not saying don't do it, but really reserve it. Don't use it as your standard, you know, um, uh, access to care. I had an infusion of DHE after having a migraine that lasted for a very, very long time. And that was, I was in the hospital for several days and that was, that was, that was rough. Um, but I do have a follow-up question about, about imaging. Um, it seems like patients that I see, it is so, so common that they have different kinds of head pain. 
Um, and some of them have had quite extensive imaging and others have had none. Like I had a patient the other day who says she's had head pain since she was eight. She's now in her early twenties. And mom says she has never had a scan ever of, of her head. So what do you think in terms of w- indications for imaging? Yeah. So if there's anything unusual in the history, I will image without a doubt. If there's a new symptom, especially things like numbness, tingling, uh, these are kind of unusual symptoms that really should be worked up with imaging. And if you're going to get imaging, my go-to is always an MRI of the brain mm-hmm. uh, rather than a CAT scan, because the MRI um, technology is much, which it's much better resolution, high resolution of soft tissues. Now, if you're looking for more structural issues, uh, for example, joint issues or sinus issues, for example, then CAT scan may be the better modality. But in the vast majority of patients, an MRI is really Um, the best choice. Now, in some cases, uh, for example, if someone has high pressure in the brain, we were talking about this earlier, this condition called IIH, which is idiopathic intracranial hypertension, I will also get an MRV, uh, which is an MRV venography, looking at the veins that drain the brain to see if there's any obstruction in those veins. And sometimes, yes, there is a structural issue. And so we can, uh, you know, it's important to know that it's there and then to address it appropriately if it's if it's significant. Um, in some patients, especially if they have a lot of cervicogenic pain, neck issues, shoulder issues, I will get an MRI of the spine as well, the C-spine, because that will best show if there's any kind of um, a joint, you know, dislocation, subluxation, herniated disc, all those types of things that it's important to know because perhaps the treatment would be different and uh, not your standard migraine treatments or tension headache treatments. It would be something different. So I think it is, um, uh, there is a role for neuroimaging. Um, but then again, not every patient needs to have neuroimaging. So for example, um, many patients come in with new onset let's say it's a young woman in her twenties or thirties, new onset visual aura, they've seen those flashing lights and they get the headache afterwards. If it's a stereotypical symptom like that, where there's aura followed by headache, I typically don't get the imaging. Of course I do an eye exam to make sure that there's nothing else suspicious, that the optic nerves are not swollen, that there's nothing else going on in the retina that may have caused those symptoms. But as long as that's normal, typically I forego the scan, but certainly like what you were describing an eight-year-old with chronic headaches, um, who's never been imaged, I probably would image in that case, just to make sure there's nothing structural that's, that's responsible for the headache. So it needs to be decided on an individual basis. Um, my threshold is usually pretty low to image. I don't want to miss anything, especially right. something else that can be treated. That's great. And, um, and what, you know, one of the things that we sometimes see with people with hypermobility disorders might be um, like a Chiari malformation or something along those lines. So there can be a whole bunch of different things that could be causing head pain. Um, and that imaging can be really helpful to find it. So that's, that's great that you have some sort of a, a low threshold without automatically sending every single person to go get that, that MRI when they first walk in your door. Yes, it's selective, but I have a low threshold. Um, so just, I, I'm glad you brought up Chiari because I know that that has been investigated in the hypermobility or low standlos population. And yes, there are, there is a slightly higher prevalence of Chiari malformation. So what Chiari is, is that um, the back part of the brain, which is called the cerebellum, it's our balance center, um, usually sits at a certain level above the skull base. And in Chiari malformation, it sits lower than it normally should. So it's almost like it's kind of being pushed down into the spinal canal and it can cause certain types of headaches. Also, it can cause um, issues with um, uh, numbness, tingling down the shoulders or weakness of the shoulders or even the arms. So it is important if you have any of those types of symptoms to get an MRI and a particular um, a series of MRIs, which is called a sagittal MRI, which looks at it's a side view of that um, of that area of the cerebellum and the uh, spinal canal to see exactly where the cerebellum sits. And um, sometimes we also get a spinal MRI as well, just to look for any other changes in the cervical spine that can be seen with Chiari. So absolutely, if you have those types of symptoms, I think it is really important to get that imaging done. Absolutely. Thank you. And thank you for adding on to that. I just wanted to circle back really quick before we wrap things up um, to the topic of sleep. I know you mentioned it and that it's really important for people to examine their diet and try to be healthy with it, to try to be healthy, healthy with sleep. But can you expand a little bit more on the importance of sleep and migraines and headaches? 
Absolutely. So uh, sleep is restorative. It's our, our it's our body's uh, time to reset and recharge, and we need to have adequate amount an adequate amount of sleep for all of our you know generalized health, not just for headaches and migraines, etc. But people who are prone to migraines are very sensitive to irregular sleep patterns, and so what I always tell my patients is. Um, first of all, how do you know if you're getting an adequate sleep? Well, when you wake up, you should feel refreshed. You should feel ready for the day. You shouldn't feel like you want to go right back and go under the covers and back to sleep. So you should feel like you're reset and recharged. And um, it's also important for people to have um, a regular sleep schedule. So for example, and I'm guilty of this, I'm still working on this myself of going to sleep at the same time every night and waking up at the same time every morning, because again, migraine brains crave regularity. And when there's an irregular pattern, whether it be sleep or diet or stress or exercise, that's when people are more predisposed to migraine headaches. So try to go to bed at the same time every night, wake up at the same time every morning. And that's regardless of whether it's a weekday or weekend. Um, it's harder when you're traveling across multiple time zones, but if it's possible to try to maintain some kind of regular sleep pattern, even when you're traveling, it's really, really important. Um, also try to have um, your sleep environment uh, be um, really dark, as dark as possible, because again, people who are migraine prone are sensitive to lights. So for me, um, I know in, when I was younger, I didn't really care about having any kind of blackout curtains, but now it's absolutely a must. I have to have those blackout curtains because even like a sliver of light coming in will prevent me from getting to going to sleep, you know, easily, or it may even wake me up too early. You know, if the sun's coming up super early, it may wake me up and then it'll disrupt my whole day. So, um, so just think about those, those small things as well. That's great. And I will say I use a sleep mask because I have gotten to the point where I just want complete blackness when I'm trying to sleep. Um, but it's so important. And we always um, go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we know it's important, but we really need to um, pay more attention to that because it's something we do have control over. Um, so at the risk of um, starting a completely separate podcast episode now, um, <laughs> I just wanted to really briefly uh, talk about sort of the connection between the eyes and migraines. Um, we know a lot of people with hypermobility disorders can have um, ocular issues. So maybe you could just speak so fast on that and we will have to have you back to dive into it deeper. <laughs> Sure, sure. I would love to. I'd love to come back. This is a, uh, I love sharing this information because I think a lot of people don't realize these connections. And when they, you know, they hear about it, they put it together, like, oh, the light bulb goes off. I'm like, okay. Um, so, uh, so in terms of the eye and hypermobility or airless downloads, there are many ocular manifestations that can happen. There can be changes in the cornea. Um, leading to something called keratoconus. There can be changes in the retina. The retina can be um, very thin and it can lead to retinal issues like tears or detachments, even high myopia with other issues. So there's lots of different um, ocular findings in hypermobility disorders, uh, really based off of um, collagen changes in collagen, structural issues that can lead to then um, functional problems. So I would love to you know, come back and delve really deeply into that because I think it's something people should be aware of. Uh, some of those eye issues and symptoms that may occur in hypermobility disorders. So I've, I've also noticed the connection between, um, especially for people with tension headaches or cervicogenic headaches, um, the connection between how their eyes work and how they move um, and their headaches. And I do, when I do training with my dancers, sometimes I will do like the saccades and things like that, and they can trigger headaches for them. And that lets me know we need to start working on as crazy as it sounds, uh, eye mobility to try to loosen up all that connective tissue at the back of the head. And when they are working on that regularly, then they get less headaches. So it's a really interesting connection to me. Yeah. I actually have a patient who's a physician as well. And she has airless downloads, many conditions, many issues throughout her life, but she developed trouble moving her eye and she felt this tightness in her eye socket. And every time she would move her eye in a particular direction, that would trigger pain. It would trigger pain down into her nose, into her cheekbone. And then eventually it would just travel down her neck into one half of her body. So it was all connected. Um, I think definitely it's important to consider all those connections between also the tissues in our eye socket with the rest of our body as well. So I'm so glad you brought that up. Absolutely. So we've talked about um, migraines and headaches, and we talk about a lot of the things that people commonly use. Um, there are a couple of things that we 
don't always think of though, uh, if you could speak really briefly on, um, there's a new set of devices out that are meant to stimulate the vagus nerve. If you could talk about that and also the use of Botox in treating migraines and headaches. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up because I know a lot of people do benefit from these modalities. So these are called neuromodulatory devices and um, they basically are used topically. Um, For example, cephaly is one of the devices it's a device that goes across the forehead like this, and um, it's believed to modulate the um, the nervous system through the vagus nerve. So that's one example of a device. There's other devices. I Off the top of my head, I don't remember all the names because there's always new ones coming out, but there's one that people wear on their wrist. Um, there's another one that goes on the neck. So there are various devices that are FDA approved for migraine that have this neuromodulatory um, mechanism of action. Now, uh, you also mentioned Botox. So yes, Botox can be used for migraine. It is FDA approved for migraine. Um, And basically there is a set uh, regimen of how it's given. So Botox for migraine is very, very different from other types of Botox. Uh, For example, cosmetic Botox, it's given in very specific locations at a very specific dose. So um, basically um, it's 165 units, which is quite a bit of Botox that's given here across the forehead under the scalp here in the temple area, and then down it through the, from the back of the head into the neck. So um, it's it's quite um, uh, it's it's a lot of injections um, uh, which are given just under the skin, um, and uh, it's given every three months. And uh, again, it's FDA approved. Uh, it can work for many many people, but um, in my experience, in my patient population, what I've seen is that for the patients in whom it works, they usually know within the first one or two rounds of Botox treatment. But if it doesn't, you know, if it hasn't had an effect within those first two, you know, two rounds, or maybe even three rounds, I tell patients, it's probably not working for you. And if it's not working for you, stop it. And let's go on to the next thing. Because um, why just keep taking it? I mean, I've I've seen some patients who've been on Botox for three years, Mm -hmm. every three months, they're going in for their Botox shots, but it's not helping them. And so why continue something if it's not working? Try one thing at a time. If it's not working, if you've assessed it's not working, go on to the next thing. So that's my take on Botox. It's it's great when it works, but in my experience, it doesn't work for everyone, unfortunately. Kind of like everything, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. And it just goes talking about these two things and how they might work for people and might not work for people. It's just a great reminder that... Um, trying to treat your chronic headaches or migraines is something that should be a journey that you are on with a medical healthcare provider, not something you're trying to problem solve by yourself or, um, or see a doctor once and then try to get it all figured out. So it's important to be with someone who is uh, invested in, and on the, being on this journey with you. Absolutely. Yes, it is a journey. And it's usually the, it's a very steep uphill slope initially, but once you get there, once you figure out what is, what regimen is going to work for you, whether it's only lifestyle and supplements or maybe and diet, or maybe it's, you know, superimposed on that medications. Once you figure it out, hopefully that will carry you through and improve your headache severity and frequency, but also your quality of life. You know, that's what really what we're talking about here is your quality of life. And so, Uh, find a provider that you feel comfortable with who can walk you through this journey. And that's a perfect lead into who can you see as a patient? If you're willing to share that, I think that would be helpful for some people who are thinking, oh man, I wish I had somebody who listened that well and could really work up my headaches. Um, Obviously some people can, can come see you quite easily and others probably not as easily. So um, are you willing to share about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as I was saying earlier, there's a really a a dearth of headache specialists in the US. It's Mm -hmm. really hard to get an appointment. Sometimes it can take three or four months to get an appointment, a new patient appointment. Um, So um, you you can maybe see your primary care doctor, you can see a family uh, family medicine practitioner, um, or if you're lucky, you can get in to see a neurologist who specializes in headache. There are many platforms now that offer telemedicine visits, which is great. Um, I also offer telemedicine visits for people who are in New York state who, who attest to being in New York state. So, um, so there's lots of options now. So in, in the sense, the pandemic has opened up some of these new pathways that we didn't really utilize before. So I think care is much more accessible now than it used to be maybe, you know, two and a half, three years ago. Absolutely. 
Um, this has been so incredibly informative. I've taken multiple pages of notes and I can't wait for this episode to come out so our listeners can hear all that you've shared with us. Was there anything that we didn't get to that you wanted to make sure we covered? Um, I think we covered a lot, you know, with this when we're talking about sleep, I was thinking about bringing up blue light and circadian rhythms, but I thought maybe that would be a whole other, you know, uh, Pandora's <laughs> box that we're opening up. So we didn't talk that much about it, but it is something I always counsel my patients on and nutrition. Um, you know, I'm a big uh, advocate of, of a healthy diet for vision health, as well as brain health. And I do have a book coming out soon that I just wanted to kind of uh, just mention briefly. It's on, uh, it's called Beyond Carrots, Best Foods for Eye Health A to Z. And it's, it's, you know, getting the concept across that it's not just one particular food we need to eat to keep our eyes healthy or our bodies healthy. You have to have the whole spectrum. And this is also true for people who have any condition, including hypermobility disorders, is that you really need to nourish your body with a diversity of uh, nutrients from various uh, sources, mainly plants. And so that's what my book is about. And um, if anyone's interested in ocular nutrition and and how you can best support your eyes, um, please please take a take a look at that. That's exciting. Thank you. Yeah. We'll make sure to put the uh, the title of that in our show notes so that people can find that and be able to get to it. And the whole eating a full spectrum is so important. Our Bendy Bodies um, team member, Kristen Koskinen, who's our, our resident dietitian nutritionist, um, talks about that all the time. It's not, there's not just one miracle thing that's going to fix it. So it's not just carrots, <laughs> right? For the exactly. eyes, <laughs> the full spectrum. Exactly. Well, so um, we'll have the the, the book in our, our show notes, but um, where can people find you? Uh, so thank you for that. Um, uh, my website, which is my full name, www.rudranibanikmd.com. And I'm also very active on social media. So I think we had connected through Instagram. So I'm on Instagram at dr.ronibanik. And I also have several Facebook groups that you pit the, uh, your listeners may be interested in. One is called Envision Health, in which I share lots of tips about general eye health. And another is called Eye on Migraine, where I share a lot of migraine tips. So if you do have migraine, please check that out. Um, it's a private Facebook group, and I'd be happy to welcome you into the community. So absolutely. Excellent. That is great. And I bet you will have some new subscribers after this comes out. <laughs> Well, you have been listening to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, and our guest today is Dr. Rudrani Banik, neuro-ophthalmologist and founder of Envision Health New York City. Thank you so much, Dr. Banik, for being here and sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you. It was really a pleasure speaking with you both. If you love what you learned, follow the Bendy Bodies podcast to avoid missing future episodes. Screenshot this episode tagging us in your story so we can connect. Our website is www.bendybodies.org and follow us on Instagram at bendy underscore bodies. We love seeing your posts and stories, so please tag us using hashtag bendybuddy. Please leave a review and share the podcast to help us spread the word about hypermobility and associated conditions. This information is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The information shared is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please refer to your local qualified health practitioner for all medical concerns. We will catch you next time on the Bendy Bodies Podcast.